Hello and welcome to episode 347 of the Fabulous Power... I started that one off with a sigh anyway. (laughs) When you hit record and then I sigh immediately, those are always the best podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 347 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Hello! Hello! Uh, what edition is, is Anthony Simmons, was he for, well, yeah, who's Anthony for, Kelly is Anthony, who you're thinking of. AK-47. Who did, yes, go by the okay. AK-47. We talked a little bit about Anthony Kelly's, like, post-football life, uh, when we revisited the 2000, let's remember a season, the 2000 Huskies. There we go. I recall. Was there a Seahawk 47, some linebacker? I mean, I'm sure at some point in the history but of the no, Seattle Seahawks. Anybody notable? There has been a 47. Well, let me pull up. Phil here, while I pull I, up my jersey numbers spreadsheet that I maintain. Your jersey number spreadsheet. You know, we're going to have to get a Kraken entry in here. Into the jersey number spreadsheet? I think so. You're saying it's a spreadsheet specific to the Pelton cast? Or? Yeah. Okay. It's not every jersey number of every player. I was like... The, the play, only player I have listed here is former Seahawks running back, and I believe former Seahawks running back coach, Sherman Smith. Sherman Smith was number 47. He was apparently Were they 47. trying to cut him all the time? <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, Kenny, we did not mention this on episode 345. Kenny Easley wearing number 45. Okay. That's not like a real star number, but, you know, sometimes people have their reasons. We are one episode away from the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks, though. A number that is not listed in here. There you under, go. You might want to might wanna drop that in there. No, it's, not a, it's not you, a jersey. You might want to not drop in number 49. <laughs> anyway I, I don't plan to To celebrate AK-47 What are we drinking today? Well, we got a big pie But first we should mention To check out our 2022 Seahawks recap 2023 off-season preview With Ben Baldwin that dropped earlier this week It has already been outdated On one uh, a <laughs> contract fine. extension Jason we'll Myers is a kicker Who cares? Uh, and, and make sure to listen through to that entire episode to get to the part where we were hopeful about the Seahawks. <laughs> At the very, very end, you have to listen through to us talking about every single other team in the NFL, the offense, the defense, then a little bit of positive about the 2022 season, which was an awesome season. It was. It definitely was. Plus and some bonus WNBA yeah, talk. Some Brianna Stewart talk. There some emoji go. talk. Uh, but we are drinking, and we've got a lot of things to toast to this week. Uh, from our friends at Old Schoolhouse Brewing in Winthrop, Washington. Wow. The Old Schoolhouse Betty on Ice uh, Unfiltered West Coast IPA. The, their website has no information about this beer. It does not say anything on the can. But I have to assume because of the fact that uh, uh, they have a, a series of beers named Betty Does Something. Uh, and, and this is playing hockey, that it's a nod to the Winthrop Ice Rink. Ah. which has been home to Talking Taco Time co-host Randy Cote, tends to play up there in right. outdoor nhl size ice rink. Outdoor? Yeah, in wow. Winthrop. So there you go. What is this, the Kraken next year on New Year's Day? So this was fitting because we're going to talk about the Kraken later today with Ryan S. Clark, my colleague at ESPN. Wow. So You're threatening to have some good content on this podcast. I, it, well, that's, that's, you're not on that segment. Okay. So. I was going to say, that's, that's two episodes in a row. I don't feel comfortable with that. <laughs> 
Uh, we toast first this week to some beer news. Hello. Russian River distribution wow. returning to Washington starting this week. It has been 10 years. Wow. We so are they all stopped. Pliny the Elder after those 10 years. <laughs> we were definitely not Pliny the Younger since they stopped distributing to Washington and forced us to that look That was like such it. a podcast joke. <laughs> It was a dad joke. I, th- there may be an overlap One between those same. two things. One yeah. Uh, forcing us to I'm going to s- tell my children it. We'll see how it goes. Oh. <laughs> Luke is definitely going to be upset about it. Forcing us to scrounge for it in Portland. And I, I don't know the last time I had Pliny off the top of my head. It, it doesn't seem quite as exotic as it used to. I would say as notable as it used to, but still exciting to have them back. Uh, saw on the Instagram for the Beer Junction that they expect to have it in on Friday. Okay. So. All right. Are you going to be there on Friday? Are you going to roll through? Well, th- they also are distributing to Super Deli Mart right down the street from me, which wow. is where I picked up this Betty on Ice. So I, I, I'm playing to head there. Wow. My truly local uh, craft brew location. All right. Well, good for you. <laughs> You're in like the freaking Mecca. You're like, everywhere I could possibly go, there's Russian River beer. Uh, I saw the Tap House. The Renton Tap House was not, alas, on the list of places. Really? God. So. Maybe I'm protesting Russian River. (laughs) Let's start by toasting to our next search. There we go. For Seattle's best food. Traditionally, the Seahawks season ends. It's time for us to start searching as we go into the the Pelton cast off season. And this time... Even though we have not completed our search for Seattle's best barbecue. That it may come back up at some point. We I consider know. that ongoing. I don't know how quickly it's ongoing. But this time, what are we searching for? We are searching for a thing we have threatened to search for for a while. And I think we were searching for, I was really thinking about this. I think we were searching for my favorite food. Wow. Your favorite food? Excluding nobody. I think this is it. I think this is the food that I care the most about in the entire world that I am most excited to eat. I love teriyaki. I love burgers. I love fried chicken. But the disrespect to ramen is noted. In in is this our second ever dessert search? Maybe this is our first ever dessert. Well, are we search. counting cookies? That's cookies was sort of a, a yeah. That's sort of like an ongoing search. We're always competing. But also, this is not a dessert food. This is a breakfast food. Okay, thank to you. To be clear, we are finally searching for Seattle's best donut. I, I'm very excited about this. I I spent some time searching for Portland's best donut again last weekend while I was down there. We'll talk about that, I think, next week because I'm going to be back in Portland when we record. And I will hit up additional Portland locations and talk about all of them on next week's podcast. But there's there's donuts are on the come up, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about this before, right? Yeah. The donuts were like in stasis for many decades, and then the donut evolved. Donuts and now the, the donut evolved. Now the come up for donuts is, it's like places that are not brick-and-mortar locations. It's just going to someone's house and getting them. I, I was asking if we're going to have any of those. Like people at their house that are making donuts. I feel like we have to include at least one. to I, understand. I think at least two. Okay. All of the different ways that you can get donuts in the city. Right, which there's a lot of different donuts. I'm excited to see how we hone in on it. Right, you have your ninth and hennepin. Right, those are French style donuts, very, very different than a more traditional. And ninth and hennepin, no standing menu, a different menu of four donuts each week. And that's that's awesome. Like how we're even going to approach that? 
right? But it could be, I think we have to take the aggregate of what it looks like. Maybe we can just choose a random week and we're like, that's the week that we have to judge these four donuts because generally it's all the same. Very, very French style, right? Not in, in the tradition, you know, the Simpson style donut, right? Classic donut, OG, very, very different. Well, I feel like you've got a bunch of different, you've got like the classic, there's like more classic than that. Like they, they literally call one old fashioned. An old fashioned, <laughs> the fritter. But then, like, I think you've got this kind of, and obviously this will be part of our Portland discussion, the voodoo donut style, like, the toppings, the Put creativity, a bunch of shit on top of that it. sort yes. of thing. Yeah. And then you've got, now I feel like the evolution, a lot of the, what we're seeing is more in the malasada or filled donut space. Absolutely. So, which but, is good for me because one of the things we'll learn over the search is I really don't, I hate cake donuts. Okay, yeah. Cake donuts are fucking trash. Unless, look, we're going to get to the end of the search and be like, the perfect donut is a cake donut. No, no, I guarantee you. <laughs> it's the chicken thigh like, We've donuts. learned a lot of things about bone-in chicken over the course of our searches, but the cake donut is irredeemable. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, we had we're a talking taco time donuts. get together, and I got night and Hennepin, and I ordered two of like all four of the ones they had. And the cake donuts went uneaten. Then uh, a few weeks ago, when we were getting together as a family to make ravioli for our Christmas dinner, I again brought one cake donut, and only our mom would eat it. Only Jan would eat it. Yep. But there's also Mightyo, right, on a different end of the spectrum. Yep. Totally vegan donuts, mostly cake-style donuts, and excellent the way that they do it, right? I think it really depends. You can't just rule out the cake donut completely. It depends on the quality of the cake donut. But filled donuts are my... Wait for it. Jam. And then now we're even on dad jokes. Uh, so it, it will be interesting to see how that kind of plays out over the course of this competition. The other thing that I was thinking about, is there a local uh, dochi, mochi nut location that is not a national chain? Well, dochi, I mean, there are locations in other areas. It, it, but it originated in Seattle. There might might have been the first was elsewhere, but I think two out of the three or three out of the four are That's in the Seattle area. Donut. So yes, I would right. consider it. A and local. again, radically that, different. I don't believe it's local, but also a radically different type of donut. Very much than so. What we're yeah, yeah, about. very much so. I mean, I can't freaking wait. Uh, and so you mentioned we're gonna have excursions out outside of Seattle to different types of, of donuts. Course. You're going to Portland during the search. I'll be going to Austin. There have to be trendy donuts in Austin. I'll go to Boston. I don't know if you've heard about these donuts they have there. It's <laughs> called Dunkin' Donuts. Okay. They also have a donut named after them. They do have that, yes. Yes. So this is gonna be a spring search. We've done spring searches, we've done summer searches. There was the fried chicken search that started in summer and extended in the spring. And as with that, we will be announcing the winner at PeltonCast Live because wow. we're coming back with another spring show yes. again previewing the NFL draft leading up to the draft. Every spring, the PeltonCast rises. As long as the Seahawks have a top 10 pick. <laughs> PeltonCast Live, mark your calendars. Tickets will be on sale as you're hearing this probably as long as you don't listen to it right away. April 21st, we are back. The good news is the people who are listening to it before the link is up will probably not be in the Seattle area. But we perhaps are they'll travel here. Back at Belltown Yacht Club. That's right. Boating attire is preferred. <laughs> Belltown Yacht Club, we had such an amazing time there right before the pandemic. In 2020, uh, the last Pelton Cast no, 20, Live. 2019. In 2019, yep. the last Pelton Cast Live pre pandemic. We cannot wait to be back there. You know what to expect from Pelton Cast Live. We are going to have, I assume, food, 
surprises, talking taco time, repeat guests, probably Mike Sean. Jake One will probably be in the house. We haven't talked to any of these people yet. There's word that there, we might have the full talking taco time uh, host cast for the first time ever at a Pelton Cast Live. This is going to be an extraordinary event. But we can confirm we are going to have Danny Kelly of The Ringer, wow. NFL draft expert, no. joining us. NFL draft guru from The Ringer, Danny Kelly, right before the Seahawks Indeed. select with the fifth pick in the draft or trade down. Exactly. <laughs> so I I can't wait for this. I love Pelton Cast Live. Uh Especially when it happens right during the NBA playoffs. <laughs> yeah. Projected on the screen, NBA playoffs while we get ready. There you go. Uh, this is going to be an awesome event. Tickets are very, very limited, so we do definitely recommend getting tickets early. Uh, they're $10 each, 100%. Did we say the date? <laughs> April 21st, I said okay. it. Friday, April 21st, 2023, Belltown Yacht Club in town of Seattle. We cannot wait to be back there. 100% of proceeds from tickets are donated to charity. Have we figured out exactly what it's going to be yet? I mean, I don't know if we can still donate them to the, the Family First Community Center. Doug Baldwin no, is too successful. Construction is like, <laughs> I don't know if it's complete yet, but it's definitely underway. I got to drive by there. Yeah. Uh, Pelton Cast Live, it is the best event of the year. As always, you have plenty of time to prepare for this, but come hungry. <laughs> yeah, you can eat now. That's okay. <laughs> you might that there's so much food at Pelton Cast Live, you might want to not eat <laughs> between now and then. And we're going to eat crowning, along with the donuts, potentially. Crowning the champion. We'll see if he'll be there, hopefully, with the decider, Zach Whitman, back to decide Seattle's best donut. Uh, we've been missing him. For a while. Who decided the fried chicken search was us? DJ and Fred. DJ and Fred. Okay. Uh, I I can't wait for this one. Uh, and then again, previewing the Seahawks with two first round draft picks. I, I'm going to mark it right here. This is going to be the biggest Pelton cast live yet. Wow. I swear. I promise anybody a good time at Pelton cast live. Even if you hate us. Come heckle. That's what it's about. <laughs> Bingo from the cousin the, Katie. The, the 49ers fans who were upset about last week's preview pie. They're <laughs> come back home. There probably will be at least one 49ers well, fan in the house. They'll probably be fucking celebrating a Super Bowl win. Uh, yeah, you may do some heckling, but... Uh, we'll you, see. It's a little different. Uh, anyway, get your tickets now. Cannot wait for this one. This is the farthest out we've ever announced podcast live also. Easily, yes. Giving you plenty of advance notice. Uh, before we get back to the toast. One last thing. Yeah. Don't go to the Mariners versus the Cardinals that night. <laughs> Come to Pelton Cast Live at Belltown Yacht Club, April 21st. You don't want to see the Cardinals, I promise you. Even if you do, there's two other games in the series. There's not going to be two other Pelton Cast Lives that weekend. The I other thing is, it. you don't want to be around Cardinals fans. I assure you of that. All right, before we get back to the toast, we, something we need to address. <laughs> something we need to address? It sounds more serious than it is, because it came to our attention after last week's pod. That people do not know why this pod is called the Fabulous Pelton Cast because we may not have talked about it since the first incarnation of the pod back in 2013. Uh, because so we we were joking last week about what our name would be if we were a Detroit sports podcast, <laughs> and you were like, it would be the Fabulous Pelton Cast. You realize the name of the pod isn't specific to Seattle. <laughs> and and by the way, first off, I think I was thinking about earlier. If we were a Detroit sports podcast, do you know how nostalgic you would be for the Silverdome? Oh, my God. <laughs> Anyways. 
So the listener, Jimmer, asked, does Tristan not know the name is a reference to the fabulous sports babe, which very much is specific to Seattle? And even though that would be a great reason for it to be the name, that has nothing to do with it, I'm, I'm afraid. I mean, obviously familiar with the fabulous sports babe, but I would say that, so she left KJR in early 1994 to go to ESPN Radio at that point. It was a little before, I think, our heyday of sports radio listenership, which came not too much longer after Mitch that. Mitch in the but, midday, right? Yes, Mitch in the midday. The short-lived T-man on KJR era mm-hmm. before he moved over to, to Cube. Uh, so that that wasn't necessarily the influence. The, this dates back to, for inexplicable reasons, it goes back to the movie The Fabulous Baker Boys. The 1989 movie. Which was, I, I didn't even know that, that this is what it was a reference to either. You didn't know that? No. This was a, Katie just said it one time. Did she? That's where it comes from. Oh, that's it's, why it's, I always thought it was referenced to. We didn't decide that. Katie just one day called us the Fabulous Pelton Brothers. It was the Fabulous Pelton Boys, as I remember the originally. The Fabulous Pelton Boys. And then it became the Fabulous Pelton Brothers. It was in reference to Grandma and Grandpa saying something good about us <laughs> and not about... The other, which at, we were the Peltons and they were the Carasinos, but not about Katie and her siblings or who, whatever. Who eventually became the delightful Carasino children. Uh-huh. And the unfortunate Moffat child. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> but uh, I think that was all in response to Katie one day saying, oh, the fabulous Pelton boys. But did you know that the fabulous Baker boys was actually set in Seattle? I had completely was forgotten it? this information until wow, I looked it up on look Wikipedia. At that. We so actually were Seattle referencing specific. Seattle without even knowing it. We are that Seattle that even when we don't know it, we're <laughs> Seattle. Who was in the Fabulous Baker Boys? I'm looking this the, up right the now. The Bridges Brothers, along with Michelle Pfeiffer. Wow. Which All one are you? Cast. <laughs> I think I'm pretty clearly both. Okay. <laughs> the dude abides. Uh, I had I had no idea about any of this information, but Katie deserves a hundred percent of credit. I mean, you also we... were talking about when Katie became the famous cousin Katie, and it was because Ben tweeted about it. Was it, it was, Ben? That did... It was because definitely he, he Ben. He said on Twitter he didn't remember it. It was a thousand percent Ben. Look, we've been doing this shit for so long. I know. <laughs> Again, Russian River was distributed to Seattle when we started they... doing this podcast. No, not quite. We were like a toast to Russian in the early episodes. A toast to Russian River, who will always have available in Washington State. <laughs> I mean, I remember it as Ben. Yes, being introduced to Katie. And he just being like, like tweeted something. I like, thought will was, the famous cousin Katie that be there. I thought it was an introduction, and it's like, is this the famous cousin? Maybe Katie? something like that. But th- that's definitely yeah. where the famous cousin Katie comes from. Yeah. But also, you do have to give Katie credit because a hundred percent it was her who was the first one who called us the fabulous Pelton boys. We did not ask I thought Katie it was about this. So. I don't think it was like a planned thing. I think she just set it off the cup. She probably had somewhere deep down the fabulous big. I I guarantee you Bob and Debbie probably just like had it on VHS at their house. (laughs) And she saw it, the fabulous Baker boys, and had to knock us down a peg. Because grandma and grandpa were happier with us than they were with the Carcinos. Look who got the last laugh on that one. (laughs) Yes. It was Katie because she's repeatedly been voted MVP of the podcast named after us (laughs) that we host. Look, it's named after you. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's still named. Now it's only named after <laughs> after you. It's my giant ego naming podcast. Exactly. <laughs> That's is... how I like to think of it, is that you demanded that this pod... Because I was Carcino when the podcast was named the Fabulous Pelton cast. That is, that is accurate. And you were just like, no, it'll be named after me. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> I'm the fabulous one. <laughs> the fabulous part of it definitely, like, including Mitch, when I've been on his podcast, people who introduce me and they're like reading my bio off of Twitter love that fabulous part. The fabulous part. part. Yeah. Oh, one more thing that I meant to mention about Peltoncast Live April 21st at Fabulous Peltoncast Pelton Pelton Live. Uh, yeah, we don't really, the fabulous part has kind of faded away. There's a sports team where there's like the descriptor, like I think college teams sometimes, right? Where they just kind of like, they let the descriptor go away. Well, I mean, you can think of like this. Nobody called them the Supersonics yeah, the all the Sonics. time. It was just, Bring the Sonics. back the Supersonics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like the Pelton cast. We're very, very similar um, in as much as people want us to move. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, brand new Pelton cast merch. We don't even know what it is yet. That's how brand new it is. I, 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 I have been arguing. I have been fighting for this. And I feel like now is the time that we do Talk and Taco Time t-shirts. I mean, certainly they'd be quite popular. That that I is just feared that. And and we would, would uh, avoid no copyrights. We would <laughs> infringe on no copyrights at all because the 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 cactus is talking. <laughs> <laughs> People don't ever notice that the cactus is talking. <laughs> this is this is your version of the vanilla ice <laughs> doing ours. It's totally different. Honestly, I was thinking about this the other day. If we got a cease and desist from Taco Time, <laughs> which we wouldn't. It would. I, I would immediately send it to Marcus Lario and be like, "You see that shit In right your there?" Face, Marcus. <laughs> I'd be like, "Cease and desist." That's two words right there. Oh boy! So anyway, we're still in the toss. April twenty first, Pelincast Live, Belltown Yacht Club. Cannot wait. All right, did while we're here, want to wish a happy Lunar Near to the listener coming up there this we weekend. Go. Uh, next up. Taroma Dunze returning to UW after leading the Pac-12 with 1,145 receiving yards last season, just ahead of his teammate Jalen McMillan, who finished third. Udunze was third with 75 catches just behind McMillan. Both will be back along with every other receiver who caught more than one pass wow. for the Huskies last and season. And every quarterback in the Pac-12 and every quarterback around the country is transferring of, to the Pac-12. A lot of quarterbacks. That schedule, it wasn't exactly fucking we'll, Georgia we'll trying to, to repeat. Like, it was just like, hey, this is what a real schedule looks like at SEC, motherfuckers. And lastly, it this just week. means more here. That's why you play. Who is it? Bishop Gorman? Morehead State. <laughs> lastly, congrats to King Felix, who will be inducted into the Mariners Hall of Fame on August 12th. That right there is a Mariners Hall of Famer. <laughs> That's what a Mariners Hall of Famer looks like. Finally nailed it. Oh, boy. Which Hall of Fame were you voted into? The Mariners Hall of Fame. <sighs> All right. Should we move ahead to Coach's Corner? Sure. <laughs> no. That's that dynamite, po- dynamite podcasting we've been working a decade on. <laughs> Fabulous podcasting, I should say. A lot longer. Uh no, that, that was a sure based upon, I don't know if I want to talk about Coach's Corner. Wait, really? So oh. No, no, I do. I do, <laughs> but I don't. So I, I don't know if you recall last year, I went into the season, went into the basketball season, right? And I had no idea if the team was good, right? Because I'm not personally playing against that many fourth graders, right? I'm pretty much only watching one group of 10 fourth graders play basketball, and that is the players that I'm coaching. I have a perspective of what a good fourth grader looks like and a bad fourth grader looks like. And I found out in game number one, as we famously noted, I saw the other team stretching before the game. And I was like, wow, this shit is over. <laughs> My teams do not stretch. Uh, 
uh, well, this year maybe my team should probably start stretching because as last year... Wait, did the other team stretch? No, absolutely not. Uh, last year, when my team came out and shocked everybody, including myself, with a dominant victory in game one, every single parent after the game came up to me and was like, great job, excellent work out there. And I was like, yes, 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 that was all me. <sighs> That didn't happen this year? Turns out that's a two-way street. Oh, no. And we show up on Saturday for game number one. Again, I'm not coaching against that many fifth, sixth graders. Seeing, I, I'm not out there scouting that many fifth, sixth graders in the greater Renton area. And I actually, based upon what happened last year, kind of feel like maybe I've got a good team. We're aggressive. We're big or whatever. And we get to the gym. And I'm like, this, I'm like our big men on this team are huge. Right, I'm like these are bigger than kids I've ever seen. They're almost as tall as I am, and and they are sturdy too. And I get there, and I see the other team has kids who are taller than the tallest kids on my team, and athletic. It's like we're playing against fucking Kevin Durant from fifth grade out there in these fucking games. It was a complete annihilation. Wow. (laughs) The final score of the game, and it was instant. It was just like the other team came down, scored a bucket. My team was exhausted after the first possession. They had never seen anything like what happened to them from the other team. The coaches out there, like, standing, calling plays. I'm like, dog, have we not all been practicing three, one time, one hour, one day a week for three weeks before this? I get the feeling that maybe this this team has played together before this, right? But they are calling plays. They're running up and down the court. They have a kid who, again, taller than anybody on the court, more athletic than anybody on the court. He's knocking down threes. He's running spin moves. I'm like Luca, as apparently my shutdown defender or whatever. I'm like, you're the only one I trust. <laughs> you have to shut this kid down. And then <laughs> Luca's defending him, spins right around him for an easy layup. And I'm like, you're our only hope. He did draw an offensive foul. He, oh. did, he did draw an offensive foul. When the kid plowed over. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh... Or whatever. What I would say is it was a great learning experience. And after the game, in in the exact same way that all of the parents last year were like, wow, nice job, coach. Everybody's coming up to me. Nobody said a word to me after the game. <laughs> I quietly walked to the car. I thought about how the Seahawks season was over. I thought about all the things that I'd done wrong coaching up to that point in my entire career. And I quietly drove home. It was... It was a real wake-up call of a coaching experience. And look, I, I had a lot of adjustments to make. That's what a good coach does. We got to practice the next week. We actually have a bye this week because uh, there's buys in City of Renton, 5th, 6th grade basketball. But I, I was just like, we have to institute. I'm instituting. Technically, there's no zone defense, but I think I'll get away with it. I'm like, we're doing a zone in the paint. The two big men, we're zoning it up in the paint. We're going to man on the perimeter zone in the paint, Right. And I'm like, I have to institute a new defense. I have to institute a new offense. I have to teach the kids how to screen. I have to teach the kids how to shoot, pass, dribble, every aspect of basketball. But I am, I am coming. We are working hard. We are working aggressively to win. Also, coach two teams, the uh, 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 second grade team and the fifth, sixth grade team. While the fifth grade team is losing 47 to 13, the second grade team, which I am not coaching, is dominating. I mean, you coach in practices. And, and 
it's just like because they were at the exact same time so I could, yeah. I could only coach I had an assistant coach coach that team and Kayleen was like wow all the parents were really happy after that game and I'm like <laughs> of course they were I'm like all the parents are congrats they're probably just like the other dude who is coaching did such a good job coaching these second graders that's why they won Anyway, it was a real wake-up call. Having that happen while I went into the game, literally halftime the Seahawks, it's 17-16. I'm right. like, damn, we got a chance here. I'm like, it might come down to a final. I was thinking in my head, I'm going to have to pull up the broadcast on my phone and watch because it'll be so compelling. It was not. <laughs> so all of this was happening. It was just like the most demoralizing. I did work the refs a little bit, though. It's like they were playing full-on basketball. You should come to a game at some point. I, if we play in two, I'll probably be there on Saturday. Well, they have a bye. Oh, I guess now I won't be there. I guess I won't be there. You can come to Marco's game on Saturday. Right. Uh, But like, that's it. There's no like standing at half court being like, who's got who or whatever. They're just like, the only rule that is different from basketball is you can't defend before half court. That's it. Everything else is the same. same This is is the level that I'm used to. Like, because I started playing boys and girls club fifth, sixth grade. It's aggressive as fuck. So I had to like go talk to the ref a few times. I called some timeouts just being like, we got to cool it down. But I I had to go call a timeout to talk to the refs. And I was like, I was like, I'm going to give the pimply face 16 year old ref shit. Like, that's, but in the best possible way. It was like joking, right? There was a kid, I, he, we were down like 40 to 13. So I was, it was not serious or whatever. And the kid hit a three, but his foot was on the, I was at least watching his foot. His foot was on the line. And I was like, I was like, ref, that's a two. <laughs> and then the kid, the kid was just like, what do you want me to do? I was like, it's, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. We are losing by a million points. I don't actually care. Call it a three, whatever. <laughs> You weren't joking. Uh, no, no, I, I wasn't. There was, I also, <laughs> the difference between real basketball is there was one play where the other team forgot which way they were going. So they thought they were defending the other hoop, which they weren't. And no, I, I, heard, I heard this happen with your youngest child in the game that you were not coaching, that he ran to the wrong hoop and then ran all the way back the other direction <laughs> and scored. There we go. No dribbling either. To either no, time. no, absolutely not. My team had, we had a five on zero. <laughs> And I kept screaming at them because what they'll do is if the other team isn't defending, all of a sudden in their heads, they're like, I should be going to the other hoop. Right. All, they think because the team isn't defending that they should just be like, they're like, I'm doing something wrong. Social here. proof. And I'm screaming at them. I'm like, shoot, shoot. Right. Everybody, I look over every single person in the stands is standing, literally yelling at the kids to shoot. Right. And we ended up not scoring on that possession. And I took my hat and threw it on the ground. I was like, I hope that the parents could see that. Because they want the coach to be animated, right? They want somebody who's out there being like, let's go. I got to the practice. Those parents were fired up. What I asked one of the dads from the team to, because I was like, we're playing. When we scrimmage, I was like, adults are playing in the scrimmage to teach you what it's going to be like playing against real competition. Because y'all aren't good enough, right? Did you actually say that? No, not exactly. But like, we got there and they blamed the refs and I, at the beginning of practice. And I was like, can we all yell right now? It's not the ref's fault that we lost. And I was like, look, for me personally, to not blame the refs, that has to really not be the ref's fault. But I was like, how many fouls do you think the refs had to miss for us to have lost by 34 points? <laughs> but so one of the dads came out there and the kids were like, are you good at basketball? And he was like, he was like I'm better than 47 to 13 good. Wow. And I was like, let's go. Let's fucking go. Well, I'm anyway. very curious about this update in two weeks. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I'll be there I, for that I will one. say the, parent, the other parents, like, that's what they want, right? They want these kids to be better. Uh, they've, they've got a lot of feedback, and they want me to be pushing them as much as I can. So 
If that's what the parents want, that's what I'm going to do. Okay. <sighs> well, our first first regular season coaches corner. Very long Saturday afternoon. Yeah. I went to the Blazers game. It wasn't all that bad. Oh, they, they swept the Mavericks over the weekend. Well, with that, I think it's time for us to get an update on Seattle's hottest team. The Seahawks season is over. UW men's basketball is what it is. The Sounders have not started yet. And that means a Seattle sports fan's fancy lightly turns to hockey. And it turns out they have one of the hottest teams in the league to follow, the Seattle Kraken, and to tell us all about how the season has gone so far. Excited to welcome back to the pod Ryan S. Clark, and especially excited to introduce him this time, is my new colleague at the ESP, at ESPN, is uh, one of our NHL national reporters. Congrats, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, kind of wild to be like, oh, yeah, we're, we're co-workers now, and we can talk about things like Disney passes, and <laughs> did you know we had an office in Seattle, which... I had to find that out the hard way because it's like, what do you mean I can't connect remotely? So yeah, it's it's been a blast. That's awesome. Well, it's been a, you know, obviously you've been kind of following it secondhand a little bit at, at, to this point, but it's been a really exciting Kraken season to date, uh, including an eight-game winning streak that they wrapped up on Saturday, the first 7-0 road trip in NHL history, which is a remarkable feat. But then they've lost their last two games, Ryan. What's wrong? What changes need to be made? Blow it all up. <laughs> um, it's a failed experiment. No, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, you know this better than anyone. Streaks come to an end, and sometimes a new streak might start. It may not be the one you want, but it does. But it seems like the difference with last year's team versus this year's team is, at least to this point, when they went on a winning streak last year, it's like they tried different things to get out of it. It's just the solutions didn't work. And there's several reasons for that, which we can get into here. Whereas if this season, it's like there are things that they're doing that allow them to get out of a losing streak, which again, are going to be things that we cover. But when we just talk about last year versus this year, which of course is maybe one of the bigger narratives with this team, that's just one example is they're more equipped to handle these things. Whereas if last year there were challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the roster is pretty significantly upgraded. But I still don't think expectations were this, where they're already one win shy of their total for all of 2021-22, the inaugural season. Well, and that's the thing is like, no one really kind of knew what to expect. So let's go back to last preseason. The thought was maybe they not exactly replicate Vegas, but their team that let's say is either at or above 500 or slightly below 500, like a close to a winning record, if not a winning record. And then they end up becoming a lottery team. And it's this idea of like, well, who knows how long this is going to take. You heard conversations about, is this a three to five year plan? Like the thought was maybe think more long-term, but then when you think about all the things that Ron Francis and his staff did in the off season, that's what really played a big role in changing this team. So you go out and you sign Andre Burakovsky, you make a trade for Oliver Bjorkstrand. And then you think about the arrival of Matty Veneers, who had nine points in 10 games at the end of the year. Those are three forwards that you didn't have for the whole season last year. And three forwards make a line. They're essentially an extra line unto themselves. But then you think about you're getting Brandon Tanef back, who he missed a significant chunk of last season. You're seeing other forwards sit there and, and develop in the roles. Like Morgan Geeky, someone who last year was in and out of the lineup. This year, when he's been healthy, he's been someone who's consistently been 
a driver of play in their bottom six. Daniel Sprong is someone who came in last year that this year, I mean, you're already talking about what's going to be the best season of his career. Like Daniel Sprong has a realistic chance of hitting 30 goals this season and his career high is 14, which he's already matched. And so like you, you take those things that are just different with the Fords. That's already a change. Then you look at the defense last year. One of the issues that the Kraken had was is, and, and I'll try to keep this as simple as I can is, they played a high low. And what that means is you have passes near the net and you want to feed them to your defense. The issue was, is you'd have defensemen who'd be playing on their offside. So a left-handed defenseman is where a right-handed shooting defenseman would be. And it's something that they talked about and said, maybe it's not that big of a deal because guys have to learn how to do it. But this year, yes, you had Adam Larson there already, but then you're seeing Will Borgen play more consistent role. And he's a right-handed shot defenseman who's been one of your more consistent defensemen. And then you bring in Justin Schultz in free agency, who's also a right-handed shot defenseman. You now have that balance on all three pairings that makes it easier to not only move, but have players play in position. And in the case of Justin Schultz, he gives you another facilitator beyond what you already have. So that way it's another person who can orchestrate what things they can do when they're in the offensive zone. And so, I mean, again, there's more we can get into, but like these are just some of the baseline examples of like how this roster has changed. But yet you could argue the biggest one was Martin Jones, mainly because they weren't planning on getting an extra goalie. Chris Drieger hurting his knee and having to have surgery after representing Canada at the men's world championships, that really changed the equation. And so every sport's always talking about salary cap money, how you spend it. In the NHL, it's a more prescient conversation because the salary cap in the NHL is 81-5, 82-5. Like it is like that's like what eight months of a Patrick Mahomes? I mean, if we're talking about the NFL. And so like you have to be really considerate with your cap dollars. And so they were able to get Martin Jones and put him in a situation where like Martin Jones has won them games. Martin Jones has had shutouts. And this is why they are the way they are right now had a shutout last week as they went into Boston and handed the Bruins their first home loss of the season. One of the really impressive wins on that, that road trip. All right. We have to pause quickly for a novice question. I've heard like sometimes and have never, never really asked about is a right-handed shooter. Like, is that equivalent to a lefty? Is that the less dominant side? Yeah. So in the NHL, you see more left-handed shooters than you do right-handed shooters. And it's one of those things where if you can get a right-handed shooter, like it's, again, just a different look and a different way of doing it. But you look at it on the back end, and I mean, it can make a difference with where you position guys, what they can do, what angles they can take, so on and so forth. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. But, like, it's kind of like, let's say yesterday, because we're going to be shills here. You think about um, when they had the Sacramento Kings on talking to – uh, Sabonis and believe was what Malik Monk and how Jalen Rose pointed out like I love this segment because we have two left-handers and how he is a left-hander and it's one of those things that when you look at how the Kings work on offense I mean like the fact that those guys can drive with their left hand gives them something that a lot of teams it puts them in a compromising position and then they're able to kick it out to guys like Kevin Herter and just destroy people at will when it works and with the NHLs, maybe not to that level. I mean, it could be depending upon your system, but it's something that definitely helps you more than hurts you. So the thing that jumped out to me looking at the the Kraken's individual stats, and, and you sort of touched on this a few weeks ago when you wrote about their surprising season. Uh, right now, they have 13 players with at least 20 points 
No other NHL team has more than 10, according to hockeyreference.com and Stathead. And last year, if you look at the same point, 44 games into the season, they had zero players with 20 points at that point. Jared McCann had 19 to lead the team. That is a pretty incredible transformation. I mean, obviously, like you get multiple points for each goal. So I guess it makes sense that it, it could be an exponential increase and not a linear, but still. I mean, it is, but like, again, it goes back to just what the difference is. And so let's look at the goal scoring aspect of it. Coming into the start of the week, the Kraken were top three, top five in goals scored, uh, top five, top 10 in goals scored per 60. I mean, it's a team that can definitely generate offense, but more importantly, it can finish chances. Last year, this was a team that struggled to do that. And like what made it even more complex, not even complex, but just more difficult for them is it was the personnel. And so like you had players like Jaden Schwartz in and out of the lineup through health reasons. Um, you were trying to find what situations work for certain players. You were looking at like, how do you manufacture goals in a lot of ways, but more importantly, could you get consistent scoring? Because believe the number last year and forgive me, was it was like six players were accountable for like between 55 and 60, maybe 65% of the goals. And teams that have that sort of dynamic are usually teams that are fighting to get into the playoffs or they just simply don't make it. In a perfect world, if you're a head coach, a general manager, you want to be able to look at your lines and say, we can get production from every line, every deep pairing. I mean, some are going to be more consistent than others, but we know there's always the possibility. You look at the crack in this season, and I mean, look, the possibility is there when you sit there and you look at the numbers. So, I mean, like, let's look at them right now. Andre Burakovsky has 37 points. Beniers is 36. Everly 35. Vince Dunn, who we'll get to here in a moment. Vince Dunn has 33 points. And the reality of what Vince Dunn has done this season is, if let's say Vince Dunn maybe had five to ten more points, we're having the conversation as Vince Dunn and All-Star. We'll get to that shortly. But Jared McCann has 30 points and 22 of them are goals. Yanni Gore, 29. Sprong, 28. Again, the list just goes on and on. And but more importantly, like you're looking at a team that last year just simply didn't have this, both in terms of the people who were there and in terms of the production. And the last thing I'll add is, so just going back to the people who weren't there, Burakovsky and Beniers were not here. Those are your two leading scores. Um, Sprong came later in the season. Schultz was not here. Bjorkstrand was not here. Tanev missed a good chunk of the season. Geeky was in and out of the lineup. And so again, you look at this team right now and it's like, you have that many players with more than 20 points. You have even more with at least 10. And just looking at it right now, you have six guys who are in double figures and goals. Last year, like, that's all there was, period, I believe. It's like just that. And so, again, it's just, it's a team that, like, there's no other way to say it. They are better in so many different ways. And, like, the wildest, wildest, wild, well, maybe not the wildest part, but one of the most fascinating aspects of this team is Ely Tolman who they got off waivers from the Nashville Predators. And this was a guy that came with a lot of promise when he was drafted. Didn't work at Nashville. He comes to the Kraken. Five goals, seven points in 10 games. What? You, <laughs> that says it all. Well, you mentioned in their finishing, and that really kind of stands out in terms of, like, if you look at the advanced hockey stats at the team level, Corsi, Fenwick, Kraken were pretty solid in those above league Absolutely. average last season. 
And they just weren't converting as many goals as you would expect based on the number of shots they were getting. Those are measures, you know, for of shots that uh, you're getting at, you know, generally, I think five versus five play, right? Uh, this year, they're basically the same spot in Corsi, a little bit higher in Fenwick, which takes out block shots, if I'm recalling this correctly. Yes. But they're just converting those at a much different rate. Well, yeah, because like today, the New Jersey Devils had practice and after practice, they had asked the head coach, Lindy Ruff, like what stood out to you about Seattle? And he's like, their shooting percentage, like it's unreal. Like they hit on a really high number of their shots. And when you look at just the individual statistics, Burakovsky's at 12.4%, Matty Beniers is at 19%, Eberle's at 10.4%, Dunn's at 11.5%, Jared McCann is at 26.2%. Like that's like... That's an unreal figure. Daniel Sprong's at 18.8. Like, the point is, is, like, you have all these guys who are hitting it, like, double digits. And if you can hit it, let's say, eight and a half on higher, like, that's typically really good. And with the Kraken, that's what they're doing. Like, their team percentage, I mean, according to the numbers you have right here with everybody added up, is, like, 12.3%. But the thing is this with this team, it's, like, they can not only convert on these goals, but they also defend them as well. And you think about last year, last year, the one of the things that Dave Haxtell said at the end was they had to find a way to connect their goaltending with their defense because it just it was disjointed. You look at them right now, they have a goal differential of plus 22. That's one of the strongest figures in the Western Conference and one of the stronger ones in the NHL in general. Should we reg- expect some regression in terms of that shooting percentage? You could and you should, but at this point, you just don't know because the way they've been playing is is they're at 44 games as of the time we recorded this. That's a large enough sample size to say it can be done, but also in that story we had about if they're a legitimate playoff team, there's an exec who made a point in that story that said, and, and really a couple of them did, this is a team that with the style of play they have, it's good enough to only get them into the playoffs, but it's going to make them a hard out. Like the biggest question everybody has had when you talk to people around the league with the Kraken isn't the goal scoring or the defensive play. They can keep those things up. Last year showed their structure. It it works. Like it works. The question is, can you continue to get goaltending? And as one exec said, it doesn't even have to be above average. It can be adequate. If you can get adequate goaltending, if you're that team, you will be fine. All right. Well, let's talk about that goaltending situation because I think it's a really interesting piece as we lead up to the NHL trade deadline is really late in the season, not until March 3rd. But uh, Chris Drieger at some point is coming back from this ACL injury. You've got Jones in a situation where he's really emerged as the clear starter, but he's on a one-year deal. Who knows what his future holds when you've already got you know so much of your cap tied up in Philip Grubauer, who's been backing him up for the most part. How do the Kraken think about this the rest of the season and beyond? It's an interesting question for this reason. You talk about Philip Grubauer. Now, part of the season has been curtailed by injuries, which that's going to happen, but when he's been healthy... He's 4 8 and 1, 3 3 7 goals against, save percentage. That's what, 8 8 8. And don't have the GSBA numbers in front of him. You can look them up. But last year, he not led the league, but according to Money Puck, his GSBA was a minus, goal saved above expected, was a minus 33.7. That was the worst in the league, bar none. And it's, 
better than that this year, but it's still the idea of like, you've got to be able to get consistency out of him because like, first of all, you're paying him 5.9 million a year. And also, like you said, like there's going to come a decision they're going to have to make on Martin Jones. So like if Chris Drieger comes back and he plays well, and you think you can get success with Drieger and Jones, it's going to lead to some fundamental questions. Now, how you move on from a goalie who makes 5.9, who hasn't looked consistent since he left Colorado. Right now, that's a question where it's kind of hard to answer. But who's to say that if not throughout the course of the year, he gets better and maybe this is a discussion we're not having because like the thing with Philip Grubauer is this. What gives you hope if you're the Kraken with him is you look at his first year when he was in Colorado. The first part of that year, both he and Simeon Varlamov had their struggles. But when the Avalanche were really trying to backdoor their way in, if it wasn't for Nathan McKinnon, you could argue Philip Grubauer was their most important player. He won them games. And if you're the Kraken, you're hoping that's the Philip Grubauer you get. And if you can get that and he can be a reason you do well in the playoffs and you win either one series or you make that series close, then maybe you feel better about your future. But right now, it's really one of the bigger questions they might have to answer for later. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about veneers a little bit, because uh, one of the other pieces that you do on ESPN.com is rookie rankings. And uh, the most recent one out on Monday, Matty Benier is number one among all rookies in all-star this season. What have we seen from him so far and what does the future hold for him? So what we've seen so far this year is what he was projected to be when he was drafted number two overall in 2021, which was a two-way top six center who can drive play. And that is what he has done. I mean, he's a 20-year-old who already has 17 goals, 36 points in 44 games, and he plays more than 17 minutes a night. You can play him heavy five-on-five minutes. You can play him on the power play. Maybe there's a point you eventually play him on the PK because, like, being a defensive-minded forward, again, that two-way ability, that is what stood out to the Kraken and Ron Francis. And so maybe you see him get to that point eventually, but – what he's been able to do this season is he's been able to give them a starting point with their top six. And that way, when you look at the spine of that team, you know, you have options. Whereas if last year, it seemed like that was one of the things they were missing was just what is that consistent top six presence? Whereas if this year, again, the way they worked, you know what your top six presence is not to say that it can't change, but like, here's the thing. If you're them, like you're seeing a consistent Burakovsky, you're seeing a consistent Berniers, you're seeing a consistent Everly, you're seeing Jared McCann. He, maybe if you're them, you'd want to see Jared McCann have more than eight assists, but if he has 22 goals, are you really complaining? Um, you're seeing James Schwartz play 40 games. I mean, Brandon Tanev, I mean, granted, again, we're not talking about like him as a top six, but like he's playing 44 games and he has 22 and 44 Alex Winberg, 22 and 44, the same thing. So like, that's just it. It's like, it's, you have all these pieces, but as it relates to Beneers, it's like, he gives you that foundational piece that maybe you were missing. And that way you could say, this is kind of our table setter for the top six. And you just go from there. Yeah. I mean, it feels like you talk about his arrival, Burakovsky's edition and, and Bjorkstrand to a lesser extent. And it just feels like it's pushed some guys into roles where they're able to be more successful. If you're, you're going against the second line instead of the first line, third line and second, second line. I assume that's a big factor in the NHL. It is because like that was kind of one of the conversations that was had about this team last year, Kevin was like, you look at the forwards and you go, they're good forwards, but are some of these guys, if they're top six, 
are they top line or second line? If they're top nine, are they a second line or a third line? And now you've kind of been able to see some of these players get more to the settings that people are used to seeing them in. Now, granted, you've had some guys who've been able to go above what's expected. Like Jared McCann is a really good example of that. Like it's interesting to watch the teams that had Jared McCann and their fan bases on social, because every time Jared McCann does something, a good number of people are just like, so this could have been us, huh? All right. Thanks guys. Whereas if like you look at like the places he's been, I mean, it took him time to get to this point. And now that you look at what he is, I mean, Jared McCann could realistically have a 40 goal season. Like, and not only that, but the other thing about it too is, you think about the contract the Kraken got him at last year and you think about that number that number right now for a 22 goal scorer who could possibly hit the 40 goal mark that's going to look really good for them and if you can keep that going like these are the sorts of things that you look at and hope if you're the Kraken these are moves that pay off but again like it's all about hope and so it's about putting guys in the right roles right situations and the way this team is built now they've got everyone doing what they need to do which We'll talk about the fence real quick if I can hijack, but going back to what we were saying about Vince Dunn, like Vince Dunn a year ago was someone who was in this top six. Sometimes he was in the top four. Like he had games when he was consistent. He had games when he wasn't consistent. You look at Vince Dunn right now. Vince Dunn's got 33 points in 44 games. Vince Dunn is averaging 23 minutes, 45 seconds a night. And when you compare that to the rest of Vince Dunn's career, Vince Dunn is three points away from setting a new career high in points. And we barely just matched the halfway point. Last year, the most ice time he had played was 20 minutes, 40 seconds. He is playing a full three minutes, five seconds than what he was last year. And for people who may not think that's a lot of time, that's a lot of shifts, whether that's on the power play, the PK, even strength. Like It is more wear and tear on your body, and it's more physically demanding. And not only that, but the other thing, too, is it's like, Last year, he took 63 penalty minutes. This year, 27. So maybe he hits that figure. But going back to the shooting percentage, it's at 11.5%. One more assist on the power play, that's already a career high. Like, that's just it. It's like, when we look at where this team has gotten better, there's all these examples you can point to. But if you had to pick one, or let's say maybe two, Veneers is the example of how bringing in new players has made a big difference. Vince Dunn is an example of a guy who last year was there that took a big jump who's also made a significant difference and again like an exec told me for that story he's like Vince Dunn has played like a top four really more like a top two defenseman this season all right anything else we should be thinking about with the Kraken leading up to the trade deadline well thing is this like Ron Francis said to Jeff Baker in the Seattle Times I believe it was today or yesterday that they have assets and like anyone who's spent a modicum of time on cat friendly will look at them and say They've got plenty of draft picks. Because again, let's think about last year with the deadline. That was kind of the whole goal was they got draft picks, they got assets, and they are now armed to really go do whatever they want with them. For them at this point, it's maybe about looking and picking and choosing what they feel they can go get. Now, of course, what's interesting about this is if you look at Ron Francis's history as a general manager, those years in Carolina, he was always a seller. Last year, he was a seller. This is one of the few and first times maybe the first time he has been a GM where he's now in a buying position and it goes back to something he said when we did a big sort of profile on him at the athletic about what does a Ron Francis team look like like what's the sketch of it 
And he's like, I always try to look at spending an owner's money like I would spend my own money. And so you get the feeling that if they're going to make a move, Ron Francis isn't going to be irresponsible with that money. He's going to want to try to get someone who, again, it's a good use of cap dollars. It's a good use of giving up assets. But also it's like, it seems like maybe not they can avoid a rental, they wouldn't do it. But you get the feeling if they're going to get a guy who's a rental, they want to make sure that if he does well, they have the cushion to be able to bring him back. Because if you're them right now, you look at a team that has made a significant jump. You look at who's on board going forward. You look at the fact that, I mean, a lot of guys are in line for a career year. And you have a training facility that's already one of the better ones in the league. And an arena too. Like, those are all the combinations for important things. The last thing I'll say on that is like, like, okay, this year they're struggling. But you look at last year's Florida Panthers. One of the secrets about that team is they played a system where everyone had career highs across the board. Guys want to play in environments like that. And so if you're the Kraken, that's one of the attractive things that maybe you can use when you're trying to sweet, like sway a player to come here. Makes sense. Uh, we look at the Kraken. Their second is we record this in the Pacific Division. Two points bet, tied with the Kings, two points back of Vegas, uh, who has played one more game and four, tied for fourth in the Western Conference overall. Like, what should the realistic expectations be in terms of their chances of winning the division? And then, you know, kind of how, how important is playoff seeding beyond that? Division is interesting because Vegas is 5-4-1 and one in their last 10. And with the Golden Knights, it's a team that has a lot of talent. And as we saw last year, when they missed the playoffs, people were like, oh, they're done. And this year they're like, no, we're not. And they literally took it out on everyone. So in terms of the division, it's difficult because like you have Vegas, which is going to be a contender. LA, like if LA could get its goaltending situation settled, which Phoenix Copley's provided an answer, you talk about a team with underlying metrics that are really, really good. If the Kings had had more consistent goaltending this year, that team's probably leading the division. That's the reality of it. But then you have to think about a team like the Oilers. It wasn't that long ago. We were looking at the Oilers and asking like, okay, are they going to blow this all-world season by Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl? And here we are. They're five points out of first place in the division. The Calgary Flames are a team that like structurally, defensively, they don't give up a lot, but they also don't score a lot. That's why they have a plus five differential. I mean, they are, what, seven points out of it. And so in terms of the division, it's going to be an interesting race. In terms of the playoffs, here is the realistic expectation. They should make the playoffs. Like, if they don't make the playoffs this year, unless it's something like they had some catastrophic injuries that just were crippling, then it seems like there's going to be a lot of questions if this team misses the playoffs just because again they've shown that they can win on the road they've shown that they can come back from losing streaks they've shown they can go on winning streaks and that's the other thing is last year this was a team that when it lost it lost and it went through these banks of six seven game losing streaks this year it's the opposite like to say that this was their second winning streak of more than six or seven games like that's a contrast compared to last year and so Again, they've shown and have provided enough evidence that this should be a playoff team. But we say that knowing right now they're two points out of the division. But as we've seen this season, we've seen teams like Edmonton and Colorado that were in the conference final last year fight for wild card spots now. So, again, you just don't know. 
Yeah, things change quickly. The last thing I'm curious about is kind of what's the reaction you've seen at Climate Pledge Arena? Because obviously last year you kind of had to rely on the excitement of the the inaugural season because the results weren't necessarily there on the ice. And it felt like there was a little more pressure going into year two for the Kraken to be successful. And they've they've kind of blown that away this season. Well, for the games that like I've had a chance to go see at, at Climate Pledge, because when you go from covering a beat to Nashville, you're there less. But from the games I've seen, it's been a good crowd, but there are times you do see a few empty seats. Now, that could just be because you're talking about playing a game on a Tuesday night, whereas a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's a little bit of a different dynamic. But whether you see it in person or you're or watching it on television, like they are drawing, they are doing well. But it's going to be interesting to see like how it looks throughout the year because, I mean, again, if this is a team that gets into the playoffs and we know what this city can be and how loud it can be, to see what it could be inside that arena, like it's going to make for one of the more interesting home environments if it does come to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Hoping uh, we get the chance to see it. I think that definitely, and you mentioned this on Twitter on Saturday, the opportunity they have during this stretch after the Seahawks season ended and, you know, there's a little bit of a lull in the Seattle sports calendar. Uh, alas, they've gone 0-2 <laughs> since that Saturday win. But I, I think better better results. Which is also on brand for Seattle. <laughs> yes, very much so. Get everyone's hopes up and then lose two in a row. And, you know, to the, those of us who are, you know, ramping up to start paying more attention, great to have a resource like you to help us understand what's going thank on. You. So we no, appreciate you, you having back on. Oh yeah, no, of course. Yeah, no, any, any time, like don't ever hesitate to reach out. I, I will always make time for the Pelton cast. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much to Ryan for doing that. Great informative stuff is always, and look forward to following the crack and more actively over the second half of this season. Let's get into the rundown. It's fun, the Kraken, my coaching career. Yeah, those, both of those, <laughs> equally important. Starting with a little Mariners news, they reached agreement with three of their six arbitration-eligible players on 2023 contracts ahead of the deadline to exchange salary figures, those being first baseman Ty France, who will make a reported $4.1 million this season. It's a fucking steal. Good God. Oh, and arbitration. It's so stupid. It's it's not great. Uh, relief pitcher Paul Seawald also reported at $4.1 million, and then backup catcher Tom Murphy reported at $1.625 million. That leaves newcomer Teoscar Hernandez, Dylan Moore, and Diego Castillo, who are still unsigned. They can still agree to deals prior to the arbitration hearings. Uh, Sounders, we have the FIFA Club World Cup draw held last Friday. Hello. The Sounders will be one of three teams Entering in the quarterfinals, they will face the winner of an opening round matchup between CAF Champions League runner-up Al-Ali FC of Egypt, which earned a spot with CAF winner Wydad Casablanca playing host for this tournament, and AFC Champions League winner Auckland FC of Australia. Uh, those two, they'll face the winner of the, that match on Saturday, February 4th in a match at 9.30 a.m. Pacific time. The winner of that match will then advance to the semifinals and face Real Madrid on February 8th <laughs> with the finals and third place match set for February 11th. So, I just want that to happen. One so way bad. away from Real Madrid. Bring on Madrid. Uh, the Sounders will leave for Spain on Saturday to continue their preseason training. The team announced that uh, former Real Salt Lake left back Tate Schmidt has been part of that training. The 25-year-old Schmidt saw a career-high 10 starts last season. Gives the Sounders some depth at a position where they lost in Jimmy Madronda in the offseason as the backup to Nuhu. How did you pronounce Casablanca? 
<laughs> I don't know. Okay. Unclear at this point. <laughs> Casablanca? Uh, Nico Moreno reported that both Christian Roldan, as previously discussed, and Jordan Morris have signed extensions with the Sounders. The Seattle Times confirmed that on Wednesday, reporting that both extensions are, quote, expected to be for five years, which would take them through 2027. So... Christian Wildan and Jordan Morris, kind of the backbone of the Sounders for many years, the homegrown talents, going to stay here for a long period of time. Probably continue to finish their MLS careers here. They are, they are the the perfect MLS players, right? Never so good that they were. I mean, Jordan Morris went to Europe, obviously got injured immediately, right? Who knows what happens if he doesn't suffer that ACL injury? Has kind of settled in as like a very good MLS player, Christian Wildan. But also, like, ties to the area. You know, Roldan isn't from here, but went to UW. But the Sounders are a little Plays lucky. with his brother. It's one of those situations yeah. where you're like, ah, if, if these players were a little bit better, that would be a dangerous situation. Yeah. As far as losing But also, them. keeping them as not even designated players. Exactly. Yeah, so. Certainly, but I think they're happy with these contracts as well. So everybody happy. Uh, O.L. Reign, we had the NWSL draft last week. The big move on draft day involved their 2024 first-round pick, which went to the Washington Spirit along with the number 32 pick this year in exchange for USWNT defender Emily Sonnet. Sonnet has 69 international caps as part of the roster for the 2019 World Cup and 2020 Olympics. Sonnet suffered an injury during a foot injury during World Cup qualifying last August that ended her NWSL season, but already back on the pitch with the U.S. Women's National Team now. Sonnet has played for the Portland Thorns, who drafted her number one overall in 2016, and Orlando Pride in the NWSL. In addition to the Spirit, also has played abroad in Australia and Sweden, has won a pair of NWSL championships, was named to the NWSL Best 11 in 2018 and the Second 11 in 2019. So a big-time addition for O.L. Reign here. In the draft, the Reign traded up a few spots to select UW defender Shea Holmes, who was an all-Pac-12 second-team pick after tying for the team lead with six assists, having overcome the three ACL tears in her career. Fellow Husky Summer Yates was drafted by Orlando in the fourth round. Uh, USNW in action on Tuesday. Rose Lavelle got the start and played the first 60 minutes as they began their schedule of friendlies by beating host New Zealand 4-0. Megan Rapino did not make the roster for that trip due to an ankle injury. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you saw this, but did you see the news about the New Zealand prime minister leaving office? I did, yes. <clears throat> you, you think it's because of the, that result against the USWNT? No, no, I literally <laughs> have no idea what it means politically or anything. I just, I've literally only seen the headline, but whenever I J- read Jacinda it, Arden, yes. New Zealand prime minister Jacinda Arden plans to leave office. I say mate at the end. <laughs> <laughs> New Zealand prime minister Jacinda Arden plans to leave office, mate. <laughs> That's how I read it every single time. Any news involving New Zealand, they should just put a comma mate <laughs> at the end of it. Does that also apply to any news in Australia? If, if the sound I, I think of play it, Austra- it's probably Auckland just because FC? of Flight of the Concords, <laughs> but I definitely think of New Zealand more as a mate country. Brit. Jermaine. Brit. <laughs> Prison. Meat. <laughs> uh, a brief storm update. They did issue qualifying offers to S.A. Magwagor, mate, who is reserved and can negotiate only with the storm and restricted free agent Gabby Williams. We talked last week about why Williams won't likely be able to play in the, or I guess on uh, earlier this week on why she won't likely be able to play in the WNBA this year due to prioritization. By the way, did you see that Lauren Jackson is playing with... <laughs> Playing with a broken bone in her foot that apparently she's able to play through. 31 points in 30 minutes the other day in the WNBL. 
Wow, that's so. really impressive, mate. You know, <laughs> if things go the south with Brianna Stewart. Wow. Now, now <laughs> we are talking. I, now we are talking. You're saying we should cheer for Brianna Stewart to sign with the New York I'm Olympics. not saying that. <laughs> ESPN's Kevin Pelton Nuts reports it. here on the no, fabulous, no, no, fabulous no, no, <laughs> that if Brianna no, Stewart signs for the New York no, Liberty, they're not the Stormer expected no, to sign no. Lauren Jackson. Lauren Jackson is not coming to the WNBA. I, I am very confident she is not coming to the WNBA. But I would love for somebody to read this out of context. <laughs> what do you think the at Pelton quotes is? <laughs> At Pelton Quotes is in on the joke, but to at but like not necessarily everyone reading it. Aggregate it, what well, if it means anything to you? Very few people are reading it. <clears throat> uh, UW women's basketball got a split last weekend in the state of Oregon. They gave the Ducks a decent game on Friday, losing by seven in Eugene, despite two of 15 three-point shooting. Then got their first road win of the season Sunday in Corvallis, leading the Beavers by 20 at halftime. Uh, Lauren Schwartz and Hannah Steins had 17 points apiece to lead that victory. You know, back home to host the L.A. schools this weekend. The UCLA Bruins, top 10 in the AP poll at 15-3, and three, having started 13-1 and one with their lone loss at undefeated number one South Carolina. Since then, have dropped two of their last four. The loss at Stanford made sense, but the other came at Oregon State, where the Huskies managed to win. Uh, UCLA led, led by guard Charisma Osborne, a projected WNBA first-round pick, who's averaging 17.1 points per game, 6.1 rebounds per game. Uh, Sue Bird and Megan Rapino were courtside for that UCLA-Stanford game, along with Storm coaches Ebony Hoffman and Noel Quinn, I think. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, USC managed to knock off. they should have decided to play in the game. (laughs) For UCLA? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Strange choice for Ebony Hoffman, who went to USC. Uh, which managed to knock off Sanford on Sunday. The oh, they were at a different. I was. This shows how little I was paying attention. I was working on a joke about seeing number one South Carolina. One is the loneliest number alone in South Carolina. I was. I. That's where I was at alone in Charleston. <clears throat> really, a window inside the brain. Yeah, the mind of Tristan there. Expert uh, level podcasting. Anyway, they went over Stanford for USC on Sunday, the biggest win yet for second-year coach Lindsey Gottlieb, who previously spent two years as an assistant with the Cleveland Cavaliers after being the head coach at Cal. Trojans started 9-0 against a relatively weak schedule, but lost four of their next six, including both matchups to UCLA by a combined four points. UW men's basketball. Swept the Bay Area Hello. schools at home last season. Turning around this UW season. UW men's basketball is back! <laughs> Uh, they did have one of their better performances of the season against the Cardinal on Thursday, building an 18-point halftime lead and never were really threatened in the second half. They held Stanford to 37% shooting inside the arc. Braxton Mia had 21 points, 9 boards, 5 blocks, one of his best all-around performances. I wish if I could choose any player from the UW men's basketball team to have on your team, to have on my team, it would be Braxton Mia. Well, the other uh, clear choice would be Keon Brooks Jr., who had a double-double with 19 points and 11 rebounds. Freshman Corin Johnson scored 15 in his return to the rotation after not playing on the road trip to Arizona. On Saturday, the Huskies trailed Cal by double digits a little more than midway through the second half at 56-46, and were still down six with 235 left. 
but Brooks's layup tied the score with 12 <laughs> seconds remaining in regulation and forced OT. Huskies never trailed in the extra session, though they did have to sweat out a potential tying three in the closing seconds of their 81-78 win. Brooks had 26-10 and 10 in this one. Noah Williams had 22 points on 10-15 of 15 shooting, while Johnson again scored 15. Uh, with his emergence, P.J. Fuller II was the odd man out of the rotation, playing just four minutes hmm. in this one. Huskies headed to the Mountain Schools this weekend. Colorado's up to number 46 in Ken Palm despite a 3-5 and five conference record, including their loss at UW in December. They're 1-4 in Pac-12 road games, including losses at USC and UCLA last weekend, but 3-1 and ho- one at home where their lone loss came by one point to Arizona State. Uh Colorado crushed Oregon by 27 a week ago Thursday, the big reason they've stayed so high in Ken Palm. Their Pac-12 games have been very defensive. They are 12th in last in offensive rating in conference play, but number two in defensive rating. They're turning the ball over on 25% of their possessions, which could be ideal for the UW zone. The Huskies forced are you 18 sure? turnovers. Are there glitches in the computer? This is the number 46 team in the country. I I don't know what to tell you. They beat number two Tennessee. That's a big part of it. Who's Tennessee's number two in the Ken Palm rankings? Uh, Huskies forced eighteen turnover turnovers in that home win over Colorado. So going to need to do the same. I'm I'm really just the the numbers don't exactly add up to me. Utah, by contrast, five and three <clears throat> in conference play, but twenty spots lower in Ken Palm. They've also been stout defensively, led by seven foot center Brandon Carlson. They rank in the top thirty in the country. And adjusted defensive rating. Pretty average offensively. The Utes don't have any bad losses this season, all seven coming to top 100 teams, but have just two wins over top 100 opponents so far. I mean, I think it's kind of fair to say, and you tell me if it's not, that this weekend is sort of the turning point for UW in Pac-12 play. If they could somehow go in and pick up a couple of wins on the road at the Mountain Schools, get to 500 in the Pac-12, all of a sudden they look like a real team who's going to be in the mix, competitive, right in the middle of the pack. If they end up losing these two and go to 3-7, and seven, like the season is more or less over at that point. I mean, that would be a pretty shocking result if they won both of those. I don't know that that necessarily should be the expectation. Like, Look, Stanford it's- is still winless in conference play. You played well to blow them out. You barely survived a Cal team that is still ranked 222 in the Ken Palm rankings. So it's not inconceivable, though, right? It's not like it's going into USC, UCLA, or Arizona, Arizona State. It's not. This is the easiest road trip of the year, is it not? Uh, I mean, I would, st- I would still probably say that, well, Stanford Cal is the easiest road trip of the year, the Bay Area schools. Coupled with the two wins and the way that they played against Arizona. I think you have to say that there's there's a little glimmer of something. It would generate some excitement coming home the next weekend to host the Arizona schools. Who Arizona? All I would of a sudden, probably revise my chances of victory against Arizona from forty to sixty based upon something. Arizona suddenly looking kind of shaky. They lost by nineteen last Saturday at Oregon, so they've lost two of their last three now. So I don't, I don't know if they're necessarily vulnerable to UW, but they're they're looking a little shakier. I'm just saying, I'm throwing it out there. Okay. Even if they split here. Even if they split here. I, that would be fine. And it's a, it's a good split. Right. I think that they could, there, there'd be a little bit more interest. Because th- these games this weekend, it was, there was not conversation about UW. Well, Cal play, the Cal game was directly opposite the Seahawks game. Oh, I thought you meant my bad. The, my City of Renton Children's Basketball game. <laughs> it was opposite that as well. <laughs> it, was yes. it was opposite Razorbacks Bulldogs for City of Renton 5th, 6th grade basketball. 
So, yeah, this is a this is. I mean, we talked about it being an opportunity for the Kraken to seize Seattle's attention. I suppose if UW could go on a winning streak, they have that opportunity they as do, well. They do not have. But I'm sorry, no. It would be very UW difficult. Men's basketball would have to go on a winning streak. You'd have to go <laughs> on a 2004 Lorenzo yeah, Nobar style winning yeah. streak. That winning streak would have to extend a lot longer than four games or whatever. Uh, I bet it would be a little something leading into playing two games at home. So I still think the most likely outcome here is getting swept. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You don't know, we'll be eating donuts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pac-12 conference schedule. What is, days are those, by the way? That's Thursday and Saturday. Okay. The traditional, traditional uh, Pac-12 dates. You know, football conference schedule is out. They open September 23rd, hosting California. They play at Arizona in September on September 30th. So we'll see if that's better than a uh, Saturday afternoon in Tempe or if that's a night game or what we get there. Then they have a bye leading up to the Oregon game on October 14th. Both the Huskies and the Ducks will have byes going into that. It's a a downstretch. It's a heavily backloaded schedule aside from the Oregon game. You look at their stretch in November. They start November 4th at USC. A game we have committed to attending. Have we? Yeah. I think we committed to attending the Pac-12 championship game. I, I, well, I committed to attending the USC game. I'm going to be there. Really? Let's just see. Let's see. I mean, <clears throat> it's November in LA. Hopefully there'll be some Clippers and Lakers games. It's like a, a perfect I've been to LA in November. It's fucking great. I know. Uh, November 11th, they are home to host Utah, the other participant in the Pac-12 championship game last year. November 18th at Oregon State, which is going to come in very likely ranked after their strong season uh, with the addition of, I, I don't know DJ if I, Ungalele. Yeah, Ungalele, a quarterback uh, from Clemson. And then, obviously, the Apple Cup uh, in Saturday this year again for the second consecutive year uh, against Wazoo on November 25th. No no weekday games for the Huskies. I think that's All good. Saturdays. I'm happy with that. Uh, so, a- after <clears throat> UW's win, everybody coming back, Right, Michael Penix Jr. is coming back. They win in the Alamo. Roma Dunze is coming back. Roma Dunze is coming back. They win in the Alamo Bowl, crushing Coach Sark. Every single game on the schedule was terrifying. <laughs> I looked at it and I was just like, oh God, oh no, no. Even even the easy games are scary. Like the the Pac twelve must be stopped. And it may be uh, <laughs> the Big Ten is pretty clearly doing that. No, you saw Kevin Warren got the job, and I, I told you he's definitely it. getting. Uh, let's just Took say the job. Let's just say that uh, uh, I think conference realignment is on pause for a second. I think the big disruptor in conference realignment is gone. I think Kevin Warren was the biggest disruptor outside of, of course, Fox and ESPN. But he was the most willing participant along with the networks. The networks will, will happily look for any. Uh, 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 conference president who wants to be a willing participant, and they found one in Kevin Warren. But obviously, you look at the early season hosting Cal. Okay, Huskies probably should win that game. At Arizona is terrifying. Playing Oregon is terrifying. Playing Arizona State is somehow terrifying. At Stanford is terrifying. When was the last time the, the Huskies did win at Stanford two years ago? Didn't they? I think they snapped that streak. Two years ago? I think they did, yes. In the COVID year, they didn't play a road game. No, no, not in the COVID year. In the, the full Jimmy Lake season, I believe they, they did win at They went at Stanford, Stanford and won a football game? They didn't win a lot, but I think one of them was wow. there. But then after all of that, 
to come back and have USC waiting for you on November 4th. Like, I, the Pac-12 has had one team in the college football playoffs ever, right? No, Oregon was in the college football playoff before UW. They just haven't had one since 2016. This is why! I don't it know is, that this is actually why. Is a, I don't agree with that. The, every good quarterback came back in the Pac-12. Every quarterback who entered the transfer portal ended up in the Pac-12. Like, it is a terrifying schedule. It doesn't check out mathematically. Yes, every single one. Even the ones who, who transferred away from schools in the Pac-12. Uh, we'll, we'll see where Sam Heward lands. He is uh, not, t- not Just t- put him in. The way that I told you Romo Dunze was coming back, you just in pen Sam Heward to Fresno State. But this is a terrifying schedule in this moment. We'll see what happens. The, I, I felt like there was a chance when everybody came back for UW to run the table. And now I will say, like, I think if UW gets through the season with two losses, it might still mean that they go to the Pac-12 championship game. But I think that would be a thrilling season. And there's like people like this was in Christian Capel's mailbag last week. You know, would 10 wins be a disappointing season? Like, I get how excited we all are, but you got to look around and have a little self-awareness. 10 wins would be an awesome season. There were a lot of other teams who were excited. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's more of just a it's going to be a very exciting offseason. Everybody's coming back. It's going to be a good fucking team. But there's going to be a lot of good teams around the Pac-12. I mean, the good news is, I think... In the you, last year ever of the Pac-12, it will be the best year that we've seen in the Pac-12 in an extraordinarily long time. I mean, maybe ever. Uh, I mean, at least the 12-team configuration. 12 teams, yes. Yeah. It'd be hard to beat that 2000 year when they won two of the New Year's... What are now the New Year's six playoff games. And Oregon went... Uh, You're talking when we beat Purdue and Oregon State crushed Notre Dame? Correct. The season we again remembered... So two references to let's remember. It was, it was like the two Pac-12 schools that we feel okay with. Somehow Oregon State's like oh. they're, they're the one. The it's like I hate the Arizonas, hate the Northern uh, Cal. I'm good with Cal. That, yeah. That's it. That's the rankings of. I also sort of like USC and UCLA, but now kind of can't. Yeah. But two of the three hardest games in your schedule, with all due respect to Oregon State, are at home, and you have five home games and four road games. So that's the good news for the Huskies going into this season. It's still Oregon though. Like I, I agree. It's all terrifying. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying UW hasn't beaten Oregon at home since 1980. I, I crunched the numbers. Not mathematically correct. They, I, they beat them in 2017. I still don't remember this game. They they definitely won that game. I do not. I literally remember winning 70 to 21, and then the win this last year. Those were the only wins versus Oregon that I can recall. Well, there was, there was one in between. Are you we sure about it. that? I am, I am certain We beat it. Oregon in a game, and I somehow forgot that that happened. 38-3? to three. Well, I didn't remember that it was that lopsided. Yeah, fuck you, Oregon. <laughs> we own you. <laughs> they started by kicking a field goal. Huskies scored 38 unanswered points Who started that game? game? Uh, Braxton Burmeister started that game. Hmm. Vernon Adams got hurt. Was that the Vernon Adams here? Well, Herbert started the year before against the Huskies, didn't he? Am I, Herbert? Is my timing No, he started off? the year after, and they beat us. Because I swear a freshman started or played against UW. Yeah, Herbert started in 2016, but not in 2017. Did he get hurt? He must have been hurt. Okay. So that that may have been where the Huskies took advantage. I just can't believe that there's a UW-Oregon game where we were so much better than them that I just, just like... 
Anyway, it will always be scary hosting Oregon Home. 100%. Unless Braxton Burmeister starts, I guess. I mean, if he started at this point, I don't know if that would be scarier would or not. less scary. I assure you it would not. Got a major Bo experience Nix is advantage. a lot scarier. Well, that's true. <clears throat> All right, let's finish up with the Seahawks, who, as we alluded to earlier, announced an extension for Pro Bowl kicker Jason Myers on Wednesday. Per my ESPN colleague Adam Schefter, it's a four-year deal with a baseline value of $21.1 million, and incentives could take it to $22.6 million, which puts him second to Justin Tucker in average per year for kickers, according to OverTheCap.com. I had the lowest chance of him returning. Is that uh, right? 80, 60, 70? I'm the middle yes, one? Yes, you are, are the you middle one. Are you kidding me? I'm already starting behind? Yeah, you're already behind. Ben the is airport. already starting in the lead? He is. How did he beat us in over-unders? <laughs> I thought I did so good. Even when you, you were did saying them, so well. When you were saying them, I was like, wow, I'm crushing all of you. I was like, Ben's doing the worst of any of us. And then he just kept beating us? Ben! Ben! Uh, I'm going to have to make it up on Austin Blythe. <laughs> or, well, you have more... It's, there's no there's no path to victory. I've been mathematically eliminated. <laughs> I don't think that is accurate. Drew Locke is the one that I can actually make up some, some ground on. Yes, I'm at Drew 90% Locke returns, on Drew Locke. Yes. Uh, so there are a couple of kickers in the same ballpark as Myers. Chris Boswell's got an... Uh, a- average per year of five million. Youngway Koo, four point eight five million. I would say the biggest concern is this takes Myers through his age thirty five season, and also for a second consecutive time. Does age that much? Like I don't. What is the aging curve for kickers? I mean, there's got to be some aging curve. I I can't say it's something I've studied. Uh, <laughs> it's wow. a second consecutive time the Seahawks are paying Jason Myers coming off of like one of the best years of his career. I mean, whatever. Like. I mean, Myers' four-year contract is like a pretty good illustration of the variability of kicker performance on place kicks. Ups and downs, yes. Because there was one year he was average, two years he was really good. In fact, in in 2020, he was uh, much better than this season. I didn't realize that in terms of value. Then 2021, significantly negative in terms of his field goals and extra points. Now... He's also been very good. The Seahawks have been very good on kickoffs, which is the more kind of consistent, sustainable how, how part much of it. Is the guaranteed money also? We don't know that yet. Okay, I assume that they'll probably be able to get off this deal if they absolutely had to. Probably. Like, I. I'm not like upset about it because one of the things you see is when you see Brett Maher miss four extra points in a game, is like the. Even though I don't think that there's much of an advantage to be gained with kicking by spending a lot of money there, there's definitely a huge downside to be lost if you don't have a reliable kicker. Yeah. Uh, as, as Mina said about the Ravens and Lamar Jackson here, you know, citing a viral Twitter thread, you only want to be out here because you ain't out here. <laughs> That's how I feel about like searching for a kicker. You don't know that one? No. Okay. I, I'm Check little, it out. A little confused. Uh, as much as you can judge kicker ability, Jason Myers is a good kicker. Like, And so he should be paid near the highest amount of any kicker. Like, The Seahawks, the, the, the secret to this 9-8 and eight season, this thrilling 9-8 and eight season that they had was special teams. It wasn't just Jason Myers. Number four in special teams, yeah. Do but... You know if the Seahawks were the 25th best special teams, the 18th best special teams in the league, they'd probably lose a game. You know, they're probably not in the playoffs. 
when otherwise they were. Yes. So I, I think it's totally fine. It's good. It's good for Jason Myers. Go get paid. The money is there. Do it. All right, so you wanted to talk a little bit more about the Geno Smith situation now that we've had a couple days additional discourse. The Geno Smith situation makes it sound more negative than it should. There's been discourse for sure. Geno Smith's contract. I, I think the thing that we've seen, which is interesting, is already, look, contract negotiations are contentious. That's how these things work. And the way that that contentiousness plays out is not necessarily within... We don't know what's happening within the organization, right? That's closed doors generally. And Pete Carroll definitely wants it that way, right? I yeah. mean, we talked about, like, the, the. I would say that the primary reason that Russell Wilson was traded, you could trace it all the way back to the interview that he did with Dan Patrick right after he was there watching the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. Or, the, I guess, the Buccaneers win the Super Bowl, right? He was watching the Buccaneers win the Super Bowl with Antonio Brown on the roster. So... Talking about contract negotiations internally is a thing that P. Carroll does not want to see. But there are people out there who are, I don't want to say that they're doing the bidding of the organization because I don't, I think the organization really is happy with Geno Smith. They are always going to be air on the side of not paying quarterbacks. And I think that something flipped the second the season ended and Geno Smith became a free agent. And the idea of having to pay Geno Smith the Seattle institution media all of a sudden started having a dialogue of, do we actually like Geno Smith that much? And they were throwing around some numbers about what a Geno Smith deal could look like. And I think there, were, there was one thing that we learned from that, which was, A, they are wildly off on what a Geno Smith contract looks like. I mean, Ben laid it out very well on the pod, again on Twitter, that... When you look at the market, there's a lot of quarterbacks who are paid a lot of money who Geno Smith wildly outperformed this season. I mean, that's it. Like, you can look at the highest paid quarterbacks in the NFL, and for the most part, Geno Smith outperformed all of them. Now, comps aren't necessarily how you get paid. You get paid based on the market that other teams are willing to create for you, and I, I still think I'm curious to see how much Geno Smith's history of not performing at this or lack of history of performing at this level is held against him. But I do, I, I again have totally come around to the idea that even 30 million is probably a little low for an average per year for Gino. It's kind of a steal. So getting Gino Smith at $30 million is kind of a steal. So like the people in the Seattle sports media talking about less than $30 million is it all of a sudden puts Gino into a class of middle-class quarterback which does not really exist. I mean, you, you broke it down, and there's yep. two, maybe three quarterbacks. And one of those was a guy coming off an ACL tear. So, Which was that? Jameis Winston. Jameis? Yeah. But Jameis is a little bit lower than that. He, yeah, I mean, he was like 14 million. Than like, but... Oh, there's no way that... I'm talking no, about no, like 20, yeah. 25 million. Yeah, no, I mean, there's no one in that range. Yeah. And it's basically like you are either anointed starting level caliber quarterback in the NFL, or you're backup level quarterback right and those are the two numbers that that teams have in their bridge head. starter yeah and again those those are the two numbers and gino has clearly put himself like in the starter camp i will tell you performance. if you i really can't conceive it being held against him he is a quarterback coming off a pro bowl season period that's it i can still conceive it but i don't think it's likely like some of the quarterbacks who have those contracts 
have never played as well in their entire career as Geno Smith has this last season. Without question. And so when we were having this conversation about it, I was going through saying, I could see the Seahawks doing X, Y, or Z, right? I could see the Seahawks franchising Geno and trying to get draft picks. I could see the Seahawks rolling rolling with it on a one-year deal. I could see the Seahawks... I mean, look, if Geno Smith is worth $30 million per year, there is absolutely no reason not to offer him the franchise tag of $32 Because either you get him at that level on a one-year deal with no long-term risk, which is a good outcome, or you sign him to a favorable contract, or you trade him. Oh, Th- those are the options. He's going to be franchise tag. Like, that is not yeah. a question to me, right? That is as certain as Sam Heward signed in Fresno State. Like... <laughs> Gino Smith I feel like it throws people off when you use that as the comparison. Gino will either it's 100% on either side. <laughs> Gino Smith will either sign an extension of the Seahawks or be franchised. Those are the two options. Prior to the franchise deadline, yes. Yes. I, that's what I'm saying. Like literally there are no other options in the situation because the Seahawks have there's no reason to let him walk at that level. A Pro Bowl quarterback does not hit free agency without a tag destination of any kind. Did Kirk Cousins, was he the only one? Well, he was unable to be tagged. A oh, third because time. he was multiple times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like that, the, it is an extreme scenario. It's, it's such an extreme scenario that we remember the one player that it happened. We, we sure do, yeah. Now, there could be other quarterbacks on the market. Lamar Jackson, in some capacity, will be on the market, right? Could be on the market. There will be a team out there that makes Geno Smith, that even if they're just trying to push the Seahawks, if they know that the Seahawks are going to match it, that will be willing to offer Geno in the 30-plus million range. And I think that's a number that people have to get comfortable with, is that's who Geno Smith is, and it's not he's not being overpaid at that number. He's not being underpaid at that number. He is being paid appropriately for who Geno Smith is, the quarterback, for the last season that he had. We don't know anything more than that, but that's what we have to judge based upon. I think there's still a debate to be had over whether that's the best investment to resources, other your resources. I think it likely is, but... Yeah, I, I agree with that. What you were telling me, though, you were arguing this against me, is if the Seahawks can get a quarterback who, throughout the entire season, by most metrics, was a top 10 quarterback in the NFL for what is pretty much a league average deal for a quarterback of the caliber, then they should just fucking sign him. Like, I don't, there's really not that much more to think about in this situation. I mean, I think there is because a lot of the coach, the teams that are signing the quarterbacks to this deal, don't have the draft pick that the Seahawks have. And one thing we didn't really get into on the recap pod, and look, we've got a lot of time to talk about the draft, including at Peltoncast Live. Hello. April 2023. April 21st, 2023. I said April 2023. With Danny Kelly from The Ringer Draft Guru. Is that the research shows that high draft picks are good for two things. One of those things is drafting a quarterback. And the other of those things is trading down. Neither of those things is just drafting a player who doesn't play quarterback. So now Dane Brugler of The Athletic put together a mock draft earlier this week that had the Seahawks trading down from number five to Carolina at number nine, who would be trading up in that scenario to be take C.J. Stroud and getting the ninth pick, the 93rd pick from Carolina, and Carolina's 2024 first-round pick. And let me tell you, if that deal is available... I'm making that deal. Injected into my call, veins. Like, how quickly can I call the league 
to make that deal because if I get a chance to get Carolina's first round pick next year, yeah, like, with a rookie starting oh, quarterback, another Sam year, Darnold or a rookie starting quarterback, I am so ready to root against another oh. team for another year for draft pick. We've purposes. rooted against another team once and we fell in love with it. <laughs> we never want to not do it again. Twice, the, you're forgetting the other Denver oh, the, time, the Earl, the Earl Thomas pick. That was, I mean, it's been kind of incredible That's, both times. If you can get another team's first round pick for next year, you should almost always do it. Yes. So, especially when you remember how horrible it worked out for you when you did it. Exactly. Uh, I I totally agree with that. But the the reality is, in that scenario that you're talking about, they take that number five pick, they trade down, they draft a receiver, a defensive player, and they extend Geno. Yeah, like, no, I mean that's great by all means. Especially I I think in that scenario, like I, I've said this earlier. So I I forget when the the franchise tag deadline is. I assume it's after the draft. No. Free agency happens before the draft. Well, you have to choose whether to franchise take it. I mean, the deadline, the deadline to agree to a new contract. Okay. Because if I have the Carolina Panthers or some other possibly crappy team's 2024 first-round pick, I'm pretty good letting Gino just ride on that one-year well, deal, and then we'll figure it out next year. Tag, right? The second year becomes, it's the it's like a super max exclusive franchise tag. franchise tag. Yes. But also, like, if Gino gets there, then that's a good place to be also. By all means, you'd still have the extra first-round pick to use. So that's, yeah. I think the Seahawks are in a very good position, and I think the Seahawks should be thankful for Geno Smith. And that's kind of, that is what I've learned. Well, there's almost, for me, viewing how the Seattle media is viewing Geno is... And I, I don't think we should overstate that. It's been almost everybody in, in institutional Seattle media who has floated the idea that we would possibly be upset with a Geno Smith extension at numbers that are not rea- realistic. I don't think that's and exactly the, what they've floated. The second that Geno signs the deal that he's going to sign, because he probably, the most likely outcome here is that Geno probably signs an extension. Would you agree with that? Like uh, including after he's franchise tagged? Probably. I think the most likely outcome is he's franchised and then signs an extension. Yeah, that's probably not, the most likely extension. Not that scenario. many quarterbacks play out a year on a franchise tag. Not that many, no. When and as we've said, the other thing that plays into this scenario is Geno Smith probably has more incentive to get a long-term deal done than a quarterback who's already made a lot of money in his career. And he should. When when people see what that number is, and when the institution Seattle media sees what that number is, they are going to lose their goddamn minds. Well, they did just celebrate the Russell Wilson trade because it was like redistributing, you know, no longer paying that high a percentage of the cap to one player. And the reality is, quarterback is the most important position on the field. In in some way, I, I don't want to say the only important position, but it's it's even as highly as it's valued. Is still undervalued. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the star quarterbacks, like, again, uh, there's some massive contracts for players who have not played that well, Russell yes. Wilson included. But, like, when those players are playing at that level... Like, you could not possibly overpay Patrick Mahomes. Exactly. Yeah. And offense is more consistent year-to-year than defense is. A little bit less true than it used to be, according to Football Outsiders research. Defense is being more consistent. And offense is being less consistent. Wow. That's kind of interesting. It is interesting. Uh, but still, over time, just if there's a, a... Who knows? What is that sample size? In the last few years, and the, there's more research to be done than that one. I just wanted to throw that out. But 
bringing Gino back at that number is going to be the right number. And again, the way that Gino Smith is viewed, we are this close, this close. Let's appreciate it, folks, because we are this close to the Gino backlash. It is coming and it is coming hard. Like that, that is the thing that I've learned this last week is that people are going to, people love to cheer for Geno Smith when he said, what is he getting paid? A few million dollars, seven million, seven million with incentives. Correct. Quarterback who was, he was an unknown, right? He, he had the whole story. He the second back. he becomes a black quarterback who is highly paid, the story is going to change around Geno Smith. And the second that all the quotes that he had at the end of the year, and Pete Carroll had, that Geno Smith dared to ask for a market value salary from the Seahawks, that story is going to change around Geno Smith so fucking quick. So um, we should appreciate Geno Smith in this moment, and we should appreciate Geno Smith after he signs the extension because the institution media is so ready to crush Geno Smith next year. I think you're a little too cynical on this point, but I, I agree that... They've already started. They have already started. Again, no one has said anything negative about Geno Smith. Yes, they have. They have not. They have... They have the most negative shit they, that's been they, said they, about Geno Smith has been on this podcast. I hate to break it to you. By Ben. More negative... <laughs> no, by you. More negative stuff has been said on this podcast than has been said outside of it. So I, I that's why I reject your premise to that degree. But I agree that Gino's contract will change things and it shouldn't necessarily because he has earned a contract at that level. Absolutely, yes. On that note. <laughs> April 21st, Pelton Cast Live, Belltown Yacht Club. Get your tickets. Come hungry, come thirsty. We will see you there. I mean, don't imply that we're giving people free <clears throat> drinks. Uh, we might. I'm, I'm working on it. We'll L- see. Uh, Washington State liquor laws permit that, but <laughs> prohibit that. Prohibit that. Prohibit. <laughs> not, not permit. That's the opposite <laughs> of prohibit. Those, those two words are opposed to each other. Key difference. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks. Permit and prohibit. <laughs>